I'm Adam. And I'm Dalton. This week on Fly on the Wall, we have Mark Sanford, former South Carolina congressman and governor, and most recently primary challenger to President Trump. And joining us today is DC Bureau Chief of BuzzFeed News and Geopolitics Fellow, Kate Nocera, who covered Governor Sanford extensively when he was in Congress. But before we start, make sure to interact with us and follow us on social media at Fly on the Wall Pod, at Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. All right, Governor Sanford, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. My pleasure. So you've been successfully elected to Congress numerous times, winning both competitive primaries and general elections and the governorship of South Carolina. When running for office, what strategies have you used to stand out to voters in a crowded field? You know, I don't think that there's been anything uh, particularly um, deliberate from a strategic or a tactical standpoint. Um, I, I think there's real value in saying what's on your mind. I look back in my first race for Congress and I'd never run for dog catcher before. I didn't know anything about anything. And I remember holding these like flip charts up in front of a Rotary Club talk and I was talking about what happened to Spain in 1600 based on their debt load. And all I can think as I look back on it is that whoever was sitting in the back of the room must have been thinking, I have no idea what that guy's talking about. But he sure is passionate about it and based on that, I'll, I'll give my vote. And so what I would say to folks is voters somehow have a way of reading uh, sincerity, conviction. Certainly that it can be faked out on occasion, but, but by and large, people read that. And so if what interests you is something at the federal level, then run for federal office. If what interests you is something at the local level, run for local office. So there wasn't any real strategy. I just was speaking from the heart on some issues about it. But you also like, you do like props. A little bit. Yeah, they, you like well, a Well, that's why, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I've used them on occasion just yeah. because, you know, a picture can communicate a thousand words and people get sick of words. You tell them about the pigs. Yeah, so, I mean, but again, what is forgotten about that story is one, that it worked. Yeah. Uh, because the Senate found the money. Um, and what's also forgotten was there was nine months of lead up to, to you know, grabbing the props. I mean, I... I tried every conventional mechanism by which to negotiate with the House and Senate leadership. They basically said, forget it. Uh, I said, okay, I mean, you're leaving me no other choice than to look for some (laughs) more colorful way of raising what I think is a fundamentally constitutional issue. And so next thing you know, a highway patrol car is headed for Lexington County. Two little pigs are thrown in the back of the patrol car, bring back... I grab a pig underneath each arm. I walk up, uh, and there in the lobby of the uh, state house, I gave an impromptu press conference, um, and which wasn't exactly well received in the state house, but it well was well received across the state. But because people got it, in this case, the legislative body was putting pork before, in this case, a constitutional mandate, and as a consequence, they they they, they turned it back, and we closed up. An unconstitutional deficit, which uh, you're not supposed to have with a balanced budget requirement. So as a politician, you think sometimes it's necessary to grab the attention of voters through unconventional means like that, and you think it pays off in the long run? Well, I think we've got a working example of that in the White House yeah. right now. And I mean, he's the master of it. Nobody can come close to his prowess on that front. Um, uh, and so I, I, I don't think you need to get reckless. I mean, I was I think there's a Bloomberg ad about bring back presidential or something along mm-hmm. those lines and sort of a, the latest and greatest crazy things that the president. I don't think you want to incite aside violence. I don't think you want to do some of the things that the, the president's done in crossing that line. 
But I do think you want to look for ways of making things real to people's lives because they're busy. Right. And so this is a little bit of a different um, tack, but you're here today for an, at Georgetown for an event called Reflections on Running. And you have the uncommon experience of having been reelected to a major office after a scandal. Um, what was it like running for Congress after leaving the governorship and how did you reconnect with the voters? It was hard. Um, I mean, that was arguably the toughest race of my life, notwithstanding the last primary, which I lost. But 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 uh, but that that was a different race for a lot of different reasons. I mean, if the president of the United States is coming out against you as a member of Congress, it's generally not a good day, uh, particularly if it's of your own party. Um, but that that race was, uh, in some ways, a very spiritual race. It was. Um, you know, I, I, I believe that we're all, now all on a road to redemption. I believe that everybody falls on their face at some point in their life. And the question is, how do you get back up? And so there were a lot of other elements into that race. And what I connected with with people was, one, the value proposition would have always been about, which is I'm going to watch out for your pocketbook or your wallet. I'm going to be rather diligent on that. And um, I'm just like you are. And I, I may have been living in a more public forum, but... Uh, I, I fell down, um, but I do believe in the Christian model of repentance and second chance. And a lot of other people do in our state, and as a consequence, I was given a second chance. So you got you got pretty annoyed at the press during that. During that I'm week. always annoyed at the press. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm actually not. I'm a big fan of the press. I, I mean, I believe in the fourth estate. I believe it's a check. If you're a conservative, you want checks on power. Yeah. And I, I believe passionately in the value of the press and this idea of fake news and enemy of the state and all that stuff that's being branded about of late is something I categorically disagree with. Now, you say I got annoyed with the press maybe because they, they focused on the sensational and they wouldn't yeah. let it go. Yeah, I do, because, uh, you know, what I think is key to every one of our lives and key to communicating messages in politics is some degree of context. Um and, and, and what they weren't doing in that particular media cycle was providing any degree of context. They would just look for the spiciest, juiciest, stupidest thing that I may have said over the last 10 years of my life and, and collect them, throw them out one after another. And that's okay if it's a political opponent. It's not okay if it's the media. Hmm. So to start your executive political career, you knocked off the incumbent lieutenant governor and governor of South Carolina. What gave you the sense that you could win and, and how did you pull it off? I just didn't know better. <laughs> you know, I think what you'll find in life is that there are a lot of things where ignorance is bliss. Uh, and and um, and if you really m- knew enough, you probably wouldn't do it. Uh, but I was like, this is a joke. Look at our numbers as a state. We had some rather deplorable numbers in a variety of different categories. Uh, and we have a a good old boy system. The guy that had actually come and recruited me, if you will, to run for governor, John Rainey, bless his soul, he's now died, great guy, patriarch in the state. And he came and he said, you know, he told the story of the parable of the talents. And he said, you know, you've accumulated enough political capital such that you could be a legitimate candidate for governor or for Senate. And I'm like, well, you got a big pool of other capital. I'll trade you. And he's like, obviously, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> and he says, no, you really ought to do this because a lot of guys can build another apartment complex. Not so many guys could be governor or senator. And so long story, I decided to do it. And to my surprise, everybody else has ended up winning. And remember, years later, he'd come and he'd fuss at me about this or that, and, you know, carrying pigs into it. I said, 
look, John, you were the one that said you're tired of our state playing between the 40-yard line and the 40-yard line. And, you know, you, you wanted somebody to put, I, I'm pushing it. And, and, and so what I think uh, is particularly upsetting for many people and what is in part created the Trump phenomenon is that people get sick and tired of the good old boy system and the degree to which the political system will watch out for itself to the exclusion of their interests. Hmm. So after leaving the governorship, you recruited Nikki Haley to be a replacement. What was that process like and what do you think it uh, turned out as? Uh, the, um, I mean, she's a very able political body. She came in wanting to run for treasurer. I said, look, you know, it's not, m m they aren't my people in my voting block, but I think that whoever goes after that particular voting block, uh, will be the next governor. And at that point, nobody was, uh, she came back in said, yeah, I've talked to Michael. We, you know, we want to do it and will you help us? And one thing led to another and there she is. And she's certainly been. Uh, a star in the world of politics. Yeah, so as governor, uh, when you started out, you uh, there was a Republican administration in the White House, but in 2008, that switched. And you had a unique perspective on the interplay of the federal and state governments after you attempted to reject a portion of the federal stimulus money earmarked by Congress for South Carolina. Um, can you take us through how this relationship between the White House and um, being a governor might have changed throughout your time in Congress and as a governor? Well, I don't know that the overall you know, uh, power setting has changed at the end of the day, Trump, I mean, uh, you know, fed Trump state. And I don't mean that in the latest <laughs> Trump, but in the broader sense of Trump. And, and, and I think that's a mistake. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm big on, on uh, states' rights. The problem with states' rights in the South is oftentimes it's a disguised word for, for uh, segregation and a variety of other things that I don't believe in. But, but, but th that's where it causes some problems. But, you know, I, I believe if you believe in federalism, which I do, and which would make sense as a conservative, you'd say that the, as much as possible, you want to vest power and authority at the most local level possible. Because you can go up to your city council member at the grocery store, grab them by the shoulder, say, what the heck are you thinking? You're killing me here. Uh, it's more difficult with a member of the state house or um, a, a, you know, a member of the Congress who's you know, off in Washington every week. Um, and, and so I don't know that the power setting has changed. I do know that it needs to be challenged. And that's what we attempted to do. Wherein we were, you know, the remedy for a problem that was created by too much debt was more debt. But to me, that didn't make sense, which is why we attempted to reject that stimulus package. But now what's currently happening, I mean, the federal government has expanded a lot. Debt, debt, debt keeps growing and growing. I mean, can you talk about a little bit how that played into Yeah, we're, we're walking to... through a, a, a chapter of financial insanity. Historians are going to look back on this. Here's, here's my prediction. We may well be in the 1920s and not know it. And we all know what followed the 1920s. That's the Great Depression. That will have incredible impact for a student at Georgetown. As bright as that student may be, uh, as able and capable as that student may be, the playing field on which you operate matters. And if we don't watch out, we're going to have a lot of opportunities snuffed out simply because people would not watch the, the checking account in Washington, D.C. And it keeps getting worse. Uh, th this president, I've been outspoken on this front in my short-lived presidential race, which was not a presidential race, it was a messaging attempt, was all built on the fact that, hey, we may want to wake up to the fact that we're not paying for this stuff. 
And so we have varying degrees of fiscal insanity on both the Republican and Democratic sides. So speaking of that, you were most recently a primary challenger to President Trump, uh, suspending your campaign last November. I know you described it as more of a messaging uh, front, but what unique obstacles did you face trying to challenge a sitting president, particularly one who's so popular within his own party? Innumerable. (laughs) (laughs) It was exhausting. It was like pushing a rock uphill. Uh, I I mean, and every turn and twist, I mean, they shut you down in your own state where you might have had some degree of of, of political umph and organization. uh, So they just canceled the primary. You're not going to play here. Uh, I remember... We were at a spaghetti dinner outside of Manchester. This is maybe a week before I pulled the plug and we're at this thing. And it's one of these long, winding Republican events, three hours long. The whole world speaks. Everybody from this office holder to that office holder, this wannabe office holder to that wannabe office holder. And, but, you know, they, they wouldn't let me speak. And so, I mean, here you are, I'll say, live free or die. I go up to the head guy afterward. I said, you know, this is a little perplexing for me. I sat here for three hours and uh, you wouldn't let me speak. Well, you know, the number two guy in the Trump campaign was here and we didn't want to offend him. And I get it. Uh, so it was just, you know, a, a lot of impediments. And, and, and again, something you knew you couldn't win. But you thought you might have a better shot at getting a greater degree of message out there on the coming financial storm and its implications for people's lives. Yeah, and that happened in South Carolina as well, right? You had to, you went to some event and... Oh, there was Boeing, yeah, and carried on. Protesting you. You knew what you were watching. No, no, I walked in, yeah, I was just having fun with that one. That was... That was, yeah, you know. I mean, is it hard, though, like, especially in South Carolina, where there are people that you've known throughout your political career that have supported you in your political career who, you know, turned your back both on you and, like, maybe conservatism as well? Forget me. I'm irrelevant. There has been a 180-degree flip, uh, and I won't mention names, um... But, I mean, you know, whether it's with Lindsay or Mick or Nikki, I mean, people I grew up with in politics, the degree to which people have held one view with regard to what Trump is doing and saying and its implications for the parties, and and, and then the degree to which they've gone 180, I think is deeply troubling. And and so forget me. I, I think what's, what's discouraging from my end is the degree to which and, and this was sort of the operating premise of the campaign. And because the guys had come to me saying, look, what's a couple of additional months after you've already invested 25 years? If you might have some degree of shot of getting a message out there on a debate that comes along once every four years. And so I said, okay, I'd do it. And I said, and, and so the operating premise was those thousands upon thousands of conversations that I had with people that are earnest and hardworking in their small business, in their home, uh, you know, at their place of worship, you name it. And the degree to which they would tell me about, you know, I'm really struggling in the family checkbook and why is the government checkbook like this? Either those conversations were, were real or all those people have been uh, teleported to Mars or they've all had frontal lobotomies. Uh, but, but, I mean, it's one of those three. And, and so you got into it and what you find is there is a thing called groupthink. Uh, wherein people, we, we have a herd instinct in us as, as humans. It's part of our, uh, I guess, a necessity to survival. But at times it does its grave damage. And I think we're in one of those moments. I don't back away for one second. 
with regard to my belief on the harm that the Trump presidency is doing to the Republican Party and the conservative movement. Because for the average young person out there, which is why I, I guess people are moving towards socialism, they're like, if this is conservative, then based on tone alone, I'm not so sure I want it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that part is discouraging because it is an about face on people from people that I've known in many cases for 20, 25 years. So I guess speaking about that, you've um, said people in your party, like Lindsey Graham, have done a 180 on many of these issues. What have your conversations... I, I don't want to say that. You can just look at the words. We all are judged by what we do. Take his words and compare them from then and now, and it's not what I say, it's what he's done. But well, anyway... Well, what have your point. conversations with him been like um, in the intervening years? You know, you just learn to leave certain things alone. And so, you know... He's where he is, and 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 yeah, I, you know, maybe he's the genius here, uh, because he's in the U.S. Senate, and I'm out of the U.S. Congress. So, yeah, a lot of people say, well, that's just the price of admission. From my perspective, it's too great a price of admission for for, for admission, because, you know, there's a sleep at night component that everybody's got their own barometer on that front. I get it, but but I, I just think it's a it's a pretty steep price. If you gotta swallow and twist and turn uh, from things that you maybe have long believed, so obviously running for president is a pretty big decision, and I know your run was a unique one. But can you take us through kind of the process of making that big decision, and then what more like steps, actual tangible steps that you had to take, you know, once you decided that this is something you were going to do? Well, I, I don't know if you've ever read Kubler-Ross's book on death and dying. It's like a seven-stage process when you're diagnosed with a terminal illness between uh, between no, there's no way I don't have it, to finally acceptance. So I went through the seven-seven-stage process. The, the, the day after the primary, a buddy of mine called and said, God just cleared your calendar for a reason, and I know what it is. I'm like, well, so glad you got the direct connect. Fill me in. And uh, he says... Uh, you got a primary of the president. I'm like, are you completely out of your mind? Did you not just miss the primary results of yesterday? Yeah. And he said, no, no, it's not like you win. You can't win, but again, this chance for message, whatnot. And so from that starting point, it was a, a, a long number of months of like, that's insane, which obviously it is. Uh, that's impossible. That's preposterous to, you know, Maybe we could, to some small degree, impact the debate, in which case, I'll, I'll do it. Um, Still popular. <laughs> uh, um, so I, I would say um, it's also very difficult in those instances to attract political capital. Uh, it's kind of like having leprosy or something uh, in terms of <laughs> being a Republican and, and trying to pull in Republican talent. Nobody wants to touch it. So you... You, you, you have to go, it's an uphill climb. You got to, uh, uh, at best, get sort of a B or C team, uh, and you begin to build from there. What I was impressed with, though, are the number of people. I, I, I got a spectacular uh, email a couple of days ago from, uh, we'll leave the name off, but we'll just say a formerly very high up person in New Hampshire. And they said, I'm so disappointed with our party. I'm so frustrated with where we are. And I just want you to see you got one right in here and, and, <laughs> and their name there on the ballot. And, and I think that there are a lot of people who say, this doesn't sit right. There is something that doesn't fit from the standpoint of the lessons I've perhaps tried to teach my kids 
or from the lessons that maybe have learned through life with where we are right now in politics. So to wrap up all of our interviews, we do something called the lightning round. Uh, quick questions, quick answers. First one, who is your favorite Democrat to work with in Congress? Uh, I think there are a lot of great ones. Um, <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm just trying to think because I, I, uh, I, I, I let's go back to Elliot over at the, you know, um, on Foreign Affairs Committee. He's my uh, congressperson. Oh, he is? Uh, he was a very cool guy. And he was always uh, very accommodating in, in helping me on things tied to that particular committee. I mean, I, I mean that'd be a starting point. But go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. Yeah. yeah. That's a good question. We have an, or no, another question, which is just. I mean, this one might get you, you know, killed back home, but uh, Gamecocks or Tigers? You'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> As a politician, right? Yeah. There. yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, what is your favorite DC restaurant? You know, Taco Bell. I'm, I'm, I'm just the worst on. I'm, I'm just so utilitarian in my eating. I, I, I just, and I'm cheap, so you combine those two. And it'd be like, you know, Burger King or Taco Bell. Shake really and Oh, that, that's yeah. off the charts. Yeah. yeah. All right. What is your favorite Kate Nassara story? Uh, uh, you know, it, it, we had the good coverage of overlapping during my time up on the hill. And you do the normal stories and, you know, she does her thing and tries to get you and you try and, you know, uh, dance as best you can and, and avoid whatever it is that she's trying to get you on. Uh, so she's very, always been very fair to me, and she's able and professional. But a funny story that I is it, my favorite is they came down to do a little feature story. I guess this is in my twenty seventeen. I think you had like just sort of started talking about Trump. Yeah, and, like, okay. Running my mouth a little bit too much yeah. on that front. It was Mick, the beginning Mick, of the Mick end. Mulvaney had yeah, she was really she was really the beginning of the end. Yeah. So what she was just, but yeah, Mick Mulvaney, Mick Mulvaney doing was that. calling you being like, right, what right, are you doing? Right, yeah. right. Well, more than that. <laughs> threatening and whatnot. But anyway. Um, and so they came down and she and a photographer, I said, Well, let's go for a little ride. I didn't know that this guy he seemed pretty capable and he said sure anyway uh, it's fairly simple to run these little ATVs I thought anyway it turns out it wasn't because he like ran into a tree and flipped the thing and I'm like oh my goodness uh, fortunately we didn't end up with somebody in the hospital but she did send me the picture afterward he probably should have gone to he the hospital he probably should have gone to the hospital yeah, <laughs> yeah but to anyway. be clear Mark was like this is how we are getting around the farm like you like what are you talking about? You don't know how to do this. Not <laughs> understanding that like Henry was from Portland. I'm from Northampton, Massachusetts. Like we, this is not familiar territory for us. He gets on a little motorcycle, and we're trying to keep up with you. Well, now we have six year old children driving these <laughs> things around the farm kept, because it's South, rural that, South Carolina. Which actually made me concerned <laughs> Cringe, for yeah. the six year old children. And then no even, accidents, no problems. Even ever. after, even after Henry had gotten in this accident, Mark was like. Like, oh, we have we have a plane over here. Would you like would you like this one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely not. I value my life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank That's you. That's great. Well, thanks for joining us, Governor Sanford. That was Pleasure. awesome. Nice to you. Thanks for joining us this week. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode dropping on Sunday. And don't forget to follow us on social media. We're at Fly on the Wall Pod at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can email us at Fly on the Wall Podcast at gmail.com. See you next week.